We're in a series called Reconciled, and we began last week. And we were thinking at this time of the year about how God was acting through Jesus to recognize, to reconcile us to himself. That's what we're about. That's what church is about. We want to help people get reconciled to God. I don't want to tell you how to vote. I don't want to tell you who you can like or not like. I want every human being to be reconciled to God. That's what God wants for the whole world, not willing that any should perish, even people you don't like, but that all should come to repentance. See? So we want to help everybody we can find and follow Jesus. So I want to get into the message this way. Over in the Galapagos Islands, there's a species of bird called the Shula Granti, and it reproduces by laying two eggs a couple of days apart. But the parents only raise one chick. When the second egg hatches, the firstborn chick, now a couple of days old, actually pushes the second newborn out of the nest to die. And the parents, well, they just watch it go on. This is known as obligate sibling murder. That is a fact. You can Google it. I'm not making this up. Or uh, naturalists call it the Cain and Abel syndrome. The second born child is just a spare, just an afterthought, and just gets discarded. Is anybody else here a second born child? You're feeling a little nervous right now. Children between the ages of two and four fight. One study showed that on average, they fight about 6.2 times an hour. That's 90 fights a day. That's 3,000 fights a year. So if you are a parent of little kids, no wonder you're tired. And this, by the way, is not a new development. In the ancient world, for example, the firstborn child generally got all the good stuff. It's part of why the book of Genesis, if you've ever read it through, is kind of a series of sibling rivalries. Cain and Abel, Cain hates his brother, and when God confronts him, his question is, am I my brother's keeper? And his answer, of course, is, no, I'm not. If you read Genesis carefully, one of the things you find is the idea that the firstborn gets all the good stuff continually gets overturned. It's very much like God is saying that blessing is available to those who the world system says are unblessed. Kind of a little foretaste of what later would get turned upside down in the kingdom of God where Jesus presents blessing available to anybody and everybody, which was not true in that Old Testament culture. So God in Genesis is looking for somebody who will say, I am my brother's keeper. Well, that brings us to this weekend story. And as we go through it, think about any broken relationships in your life, any family members, friends, or exes, or some other person where you need healing. So we're following the story we talked about last week. And if you didn't hear that message yet, go online and catch up. See, there was a family in Genesis with 12 brothers, one of whom was named Joseph. And this is how the story starts. It says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, 
and he brought their father a bad report about them. That's in Genesis 37. Now, some family background. The dad here is Jacob. He had sons by his first wife, Leah, by his second wife, Rachel, and by Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, and by Rachel's maidservant, Bella. He was a nervous guy. So the whole family was kind of a Kardashian thing going on here. I mean, really, you, what's in the Bible is stunning to me, shocking. And I thought, when I grew up and my mom or dad took me to church, how come they never talked about this? See, the two maidservants, Zilpha and Billa, are the lowest status wives, so that makes their sons lower status brothers. They would be easy to pick on, and that's what Joseph does. He gives his father a bad report about him. Now, we're not told what the bad report was, but apparently Joseph decided, kind of like Cain, he's not going to be his brother's keeper. He's behaving more like a spy. And he goes on to say in Genesis 37, now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had born to him, been born to him in his old age. So Joseph was the favorite child because he was the baby born when his dad was an old man. And Joseph the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Wow. Not just that. We're told about their mom, Rachel, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, if King James in 1611 translates that, we would write, she was hot. <laughs> I mean, get into this program here. They, this is old King James in 1611 trying to take it out of the Greek language and put it in Victorian language, right? Well, yeah, yeah, he's trying to tone it down, all right. And we're told about her son, Joseph, and Scripture says he's well-built and handsome. He's buff. So Joseph apparently got all of those good genetics from his mom. One year, when it was gift-giving time, Jacob got one gift, only one, and gave it to Joseph. It was an ornate robe. One of the old translations calls it a coat of many colors, and it marked out Joseph as the favorite kid. How do you think Joseph's brothers would have felt about him? The text says that when his brothers saw their dad loved him more than them, they hated him. And it says they could not speak a kind word to him. Now, it's kind of striking in this story. It doesn't say they get mad at their father which you would have reckoned they should. He's the one playing favorites. Nobody goes to Jacob, to daddy, and says, Dad, I feel so angry at the way you're favoring our brother Joseph and ignoring us. Well, nobody talks about the root of the problem. And we're often that way today. Families are often that way. The first sign of a broken relationship is not the presence of violence. We'll get there. But the beginning is the absence of kindness. They could not speak a kind word, so it's withdrawal, avoidance, distance, ignoring. Those things are meant to wound, and they do. Now Joseph doesn't help anything out. Joseph has a dream where all of his brothers are like sheaves of wheat in a field, and they bow down to him. And he doesn't keep this dream to himself. Oh, no. He gathers his brothers together and tells them about his dream. And it says, and when Joseph told this to his brothers, 
They hated his guts all the more. I added guts because they did. There's no indication Joseph is clueless about the pain he's submitting these brothers to. You know, he's exploiting his superior future in detail to them. And the brothers, well, they come and they said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now he has a second dream. This is a sequel. So all of them and mom and dad now bow down to Joseph. And he tells them about the dream too. So his brothers are really jealous of him. And you're wondering, Joseph, can we talk? Are you absolutely that brain-dead clueless? Apparently so. And in the next verse, the brothers who are homicidically mad at Joseph, they're away tending the sheep, and the dad, Jacob, calls his favorite son, Joseph, and says, I think I'll send you to check on your brothers. In other words, Joseph, I'll send you out to do more spying, which is what started all the bad blood in the first place with the brothers. And they're mad enough to kill you with no parental protection to help them at all. Could a parent be that blind? Well, they saw him coming. They saw Joseph coming a long way off. How did they recognize him a long way off when they couldn't see his face yet? He's wearing a robe. Here comes that, it looked like Elton John on stage. Here, put yourself in it. Here comes that dreamer, they said. Come now, let us kill him. And let's say a ferocious animal devoured him. So one of the brothers, the fourth born brother, named Judah, comes up with an alternative plan. He suggests they sell Joseph into slavery. That way they can make a little money out of the deal and avoid a murder charge. They could dip his clothes in goat's blood, show the bloody clothes to their dad, Jacob. Jacob will think an animal killed Joseph, and that's what they did. And by the way, what article of Joseph's clothing do you think they dipped in blood? Well, they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. In other words, do you recognize this, Dad? So that's a little phrase that will come back in Genesis that we talked about last week. You notice here they don't say it's our brother's robe or Joseph's robe. It's your son's robe, that dreamer. We do that when we're mad at somebody. We dehumanize them. They didn't even have to lie. They could have just let the bloody robe lie for them. And Jacob is convinced Joseph is killed. He's dead. So he goes into mourning, and Scripture says he refuses to be comforted. That means he chooses to extend his time of mourning indefinitely. He says that he will remain in mourning until he dies. So they get rid of their brother, but it doesn't get them what they want. They don't get their father's love. The family doesn't get healed. They get what they asked for, but not what they wanted. So Joseph is separated from them now for 20 years. Now you think about that, two decades. He's kidnapped. He's enslaved. Later, he's unjustly accused of a crime and put into prison. Two of his fellow prisoners used to work for Pharaoh, and one night they both have some dreams that are disturbing, and it seems that their deep suffering 
has kind of changed Joseph because now Joseph, who was so clueless about his brother's pain, notices both of these prisoners are very sad, their countenance has fallen, and he asks them what's wrong. And he's able to help them with their dreams as a result. So Joseph ends up being brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh has this disturbing dream about the economy of Egypt, that there will be seven years of economic growth and then seven years of recession. He tells the Pharaoh how to use taxation to stabilize the markets. No kidding. I'm not making this up. It's, it's kind of brilliant. And as a result of it, Joseph is made prime minister of all Egypt. The famine continues, but meanwhile, way back at home, Jacob and his family are starving, and they hear that grain is available in Egypt. Jacob sends his sons to get some, but he keeps one son back home, his youngest boy, Benjamin, who, like Joseph, was born to the favorite wife, Rachel, just like Joseph. And the other brothers are brought before Joseph to beg for food. It's been now 22 years since they sold him, and they don't recognize him. He's all grown up and changed. They don't realize this powerful official is their brother. So they bow down before him, just like the dream said they would. They lay their faces in the ground, and Joseph recognizes them. Joseph remembers, but he doesn't tell them who he is. Now, that's core to this whole story on reconciliation. He pretends to be a stranger. He speaks harshly to them. He actually accuses them of being spies, and they tell him this. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Cana. The youngest, that's Benjamin, is now with our father, and one is no more. And, of course, that one no more is Joseph. And Joseph says, well, if that's true, you go home and bring your little brother Benjamin back as proof of what you said, and I'll give you what you need, and you'll live. Now, if we're reading the Bible, the reader, of course, is going to be wondering, why didn't Joseph just tell them who he was? They're desperate. They'll do whatever he asks. Does he just want to watch them squirm? Is he getting a little bit of revenge? No. The reason is that Joseph doesn't just want to forgive him. He doesn't just want to let go of his resentment. He wants to reconcile with them. He wants to reestablish a relationship. But that, like you and me, will take time. That will take the demonstration of trust. Forgiveness can be instant. Trust cannot. Trust has to be re-earned. See, Christians sometimes throw that word reconciliation around kind of glibly. And if you do it, it can do a lot of harm. And this story teaches how expensive genuine reconciliation is. So that's where we're headed. That's why this weird stuff happens. So Joseph tells them they've got to leave one brother behind as collateral in Egypt until they go back to get their younger brother Benjamin. And the brothers say to each other, listen to what they say. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. They're talking about Joseph. We saw how stressed he was when he begged with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us, Genesis 42. Now, if you 
in the first initial part of this story, the writer of Genesis doesn't record any words of Joseph pleading for his life with his brothers after they betrayed him. But 22 years later, his brothers remember how he pled for his life. Now they don't call him the dreamer. They don't call him dad's favorite. He's our brother, Joseph. Joseph, unknown to them, begins to see this change that's happened in their hearts over some 22 years. And Joseph turned away from them and begins to weep. And they go home. And for a long time, their dad will not allow them to return because he doesn't want to lose Benjamin. He's already lost Joseph. But the famine is relentless, and in the ancient world, it was a cruel and brutal place. And eventually, in desperation, Jacob sends his boys back to Egypt with Benjamin, his favorite son. Joseph arranges a big party, a big feast. They still don't know who Joseph is. And here's another little oddity. When portions at the meal are served from Joseph's table, Benjamin gets portions, it says, five times as much as anybody else at the table. Now, that's a strange gesture. Why would he do that? One more time, the youngest son is being treated as a favorite, and Joseph is watching. How will these brothers respond? Will envy still win? Has anything changed in their heart? He watches. So the brothers leave, and James, Joseph seems to be extraordinarily generous with all of them. So he says that he's going to send them back home to their dad, Jacob, with all the grain they need and all the money they've brought. So he's given it to them free. Well, they're quite staggered. Remember, they don't know who this guy is yet. Then he has his servants go after them after they leave and bring them back into Egypt because he says he's missing something. He's missing a cup, a silver cup, a priceless silver cup. That was his prized possession, he said. All of their belongings are searched, and the cup, that silver cup, is found in Benjamin's sack. Of course, it's been planted. Joseph says the rest of the brothers can leave, but Benjamin, dad's favorite, has got to stay behind. He can rot in prison. A great rabbi in the Middle Ages he said this. He said, a true penitent is one who commits a sin and later is given an opportunity to commit the same sin and refuses. So here are the brothers, once more with their younger brother, whom their dad loves most of all, and they can be rid of him. But they did it before with Joseph. This time, they don't even have to do anything wrong. As far as they know, Benjamin, it's his own fault. He must have shoplifted this thing. But Judah, the fourthborn, stands up. And Judah, whose idea it was to betray and sell Joseph and deceive his father 22 years ago, Judah, whose idea it was to betray and violate his daughter-in-law, Tamar, as we looked at last week, that sorry rascal, Judah, stands up and makes the longest, most impassioned speech in the entire book of Genesis. He says that if he and his brothers go back from Egypt without Benjamin, they will bring their father's gray head down in misery. He goes on to say, if my father, this is Judah talking, whose life is coastly bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Genesis 44. 
there's a good point here. Never disappoint a person with gray hair. They are apparently precious to God. <laughs> Make some of you feel better. He, he says to Joseph again, he doesn't know who Joseph is. He says, we have an aged father. There is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead. Now that brother is Joseph, and he's the only one of his mother that's left. That's Rachel, the favorite wife, Benjamin, the favorite son. And he's the only one of his mother's sons left alive, and his father loves him. Then comes the climax of the whole book. Judah says this. He says, let me take the place of the boy Benjamin. I will go to prison. Let my brothers go free. I will suffer on behalf of my brother rather than seeing suffering inflicted upon my brother. Now, first time, first time in the ancient world, punishment is seen in a new light with the possibility of redemption. Am I my brother's keeper? That's the question that has haunted Genesis from Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. And every time the answer, no. And finally, for the first time, with the full awareness of the consequences, this ancient haunting question is answered. Yes, at a great cost, probably by the worst of the brothers, Judah. Now Joseph knows they have changed. They are not the same men they were before. They have become their brother's keeper. Now he's able not to just let go of personal resentment towards them, but reconciliation can begin. The rabbis in a loving statement used to say, this is the day that forgiveness was invented in human history. See, there was no one with Joseph. He makes all of the Egyptians go out of the room. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loud the Egyptians heard him all over the house. And Pharaoh's household, they all heard about it. So his brothers are too stunned to, to take it in. They're shocked. And he, he had them get real close to him, and he said to them again, I am your brother Joseph, the one you guys sold into Egypt. He hadn't forgotten. That last phrase strikes me as so human. You know, in case you're wondering which brother Joseph I am, I was the brother Joseph you sold into Egypt, right? Sometimes we use the phrase forgive and forget, but they're not the same. In fact, if you forget something, you can't forgive it. Joseph does not forget. He doesn't live in denial. He, he, he doesn't pretend it didn't hurt. He doesn't excuse or rationalize what they did. But he brings God into the equation, and he says, And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me, because it was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. So this is crucial, because attempts at reconciliation in your world and mine can be damaging if you do it too quick, or you do it with somebody who's not genuinely repentant or genuinely trustworthy. It would not have been right for Joseph to say, do not be distressed, until he knew they were deeply distressed. They had changed. They were now trustworthy. Pain and distress over wrongdoing, that's an essential part of spiritual growth and moral health. And if somebody has wronged you, well, you can let go of your desire for revenge, even if they're unrepentant. You can decide not to live in a prison of resentment, even if the other person never repents. But reconciliation, 
The rebuilding of a relationship requires repentance and time and a demonstration of trustworthiness. And that's what happens here after 22 years. And the brothers are healed. We're told that Joseph gave them carts and he gave them provisions for their journey. And to each of them, he gave new clothing. (laughs) It doesn't say what kind of clothing, but I got to guess he gave them all robes, colorful robes, you know, in case you forgot. It's quite an immense amount of crying that goes on in reconciliation. In fact, the Joseph story has more crying in it than any other story in the Bible. But I have a feeling there was some laughter too. And I'll tell you where I think it is. I think it's in verse 24 in chapter 25. It says, Then Joseph sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way, guys. Remember last time you ended up selling one of us. That was me. I mean, what a kidder he is, huh? Sometime later, their daddy Jacob is dying, and he gives a blessing to all of his sons. This was the most important blessing. And the most important blessing did not go to Joseph, the golden boy. The most important blessing did not go to Benjamin, the baby. That was the other favorite, right? It went to Judah, this low-down, dirty dog of a brother, Judah. And he says in Scripture, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Well, that wasn't a dream. You are a lion's cub, Judah. The scepter, that's what a king holds. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, the ruler's staff from between his feet until it belongs to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tie his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. So the scepter, the crown, the kings of Israel are not going to come from Joseph. They are not going to come from Benjamin, but from Judah. A king one day named David, and then a king of another kind who would be called the son of David, that is Jesus, who will also be called the lion of Judah, will on Palm Sunday ride into Jerusalem on his donkey The symbol not of military might, but of peace and reconciliation. See, his robe will be taken from him and washed in blood. And he will say, as his ancestors Judas said before him, let this sin be upon me. Let the cross come to me. I will drink the cup. I am my brother's keeper. That's Jesus. See, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. That means you can be reconciled to God, forgiven, accepted, and loved in spite of my sin and yours. See, I can't say, God, I want to accept your gift of reconciliation and acceptance for myself, but I don't want to seek reconciliation with somebody else. I'll take it from you, but I don't want to give it to anybody. Hey, gang, the way of envy and resentment all through from creation to this present day has already been tried and it always leads to death. So where's God calling you to reconcile or at least to seek it? See, maybe your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or a son or a daughter or an ex-spouse or somebody at school, 
Is it hard and messy and confusing? Yeah. And maybe take repeated conversation. Hey, maybe take 22 years or longer. Maybe. I know this. There's a difficult person in your life, and you actually need them because they're part of your growth. If you don't have a difficult person in your life, would you just contact the church this week? We keep a list of difficult people, and we'll be happy to assign one to you. I want to ask you, if you'll make a decision that whatever call you have to make or note you have to write, you'll try to pursue reconciliation in light of what God, through Jesus, has done for you and he's done for me. You know, I know some of you have suffered what might be called deep hurt. Maybe an ex who betrayed you or a child who rejected you or a business partner who cheated you or a brother who abused you. You've been betrayed or lied to or lied about and it's been done deliberately and openly and it's unacknowledged and unrepented of and unconfessed. I don't know if full reconciliation for all of the people involved in your life would ever come. I don't know. That can only be based on a full acknowledgement of truth and genuine trust. I know the way of chronic bitterness, though, leads to death. See, I can forgive somebody, but I might, I might not sense they even care. They're unrepentant, and they may never be. But I can at least be free myself of any resentment, of any hatred, of any bitterness. I can let it go. But I'd like to be reconciled as long as that other person knows what they did, acknowledges it, is repentant of it, and over time shows the ability to be trusted. That's cool. See, it's not a quick fix, is it? And maybe that person will never be reconciled, but forgiven. And the forgiveness isn't really for them, it's for you. It's to keep you free. I know when Joseph was kidnapped, the Bible says God was with Joseph in slavery. When he was arrested, the Bible says, and God was with Joseph in prison. Jesus is our Emmanuel. That means God with us. God with you right now. See, I'm never going to give up on the dream of reconciliation, truth-based, sin-confessing, wrongs-amending, heart-healing, God-powered reconciliation. I'll continue to pray and work and hope for that and ask everybody who's part of our church to do the same thing in your life, to be a reconciliation seeker in your life. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.